morning, Gateway. Uh, my name is Ed, and I'm one of the pastors here, if we haven't met. So, quite honestly, if you've read through the Bible, you may know this, but the book of Exodus ends on a little bit of a whimper. Um, we'll try not to whimper too much this morning, but it does partly because uh, Exodus is really part of the larger story. The books of Moses, sometimes called the Pentateuch or the Torah, are the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and we're going to talk about that just a little bit this morning, and Deuteronomy. Those five books together form a kind of seamless whole. The book of Deuteronomy is a, a long sermon or series of sermons by Moses at the end of his life directed to the people of Israel before they went into the promised land. The book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers lay out the story of how it happened and how the people got to that point where they're about to enter into the promised land. And we've been looking at the book of Exodus, well, this summer we've been looking at it for 17 weeks. Before that, we looked at it for 16 weeks last year. So we've been in the book of Exodus for a while, and believe it or not, we are ending this morning. We're going to end by describing the building project, the, the, the giant building project that happens at the very end of the book of Exodus, and we'll just lay that out a little bit, piece by piece. And then, I, if you'll indulge me, just like a little parenthesis, I'm going to talk about a little chronological blip a little thing that helps me read the, these books of Moses. Those of you who are interested in Old Testament history, you'll find this fascinating. For the rest of you, just try to endure that. And then we'll get to the end and we'll ask, so what? What does this very last section of Moses, this somewhat boring section about the construction of all these materials, what does that say to us? And I want to warn you, it says something really, really powerful and convicting. This is not just a, a, a whimper. This is, in fact, the, the, the most important lesson. We hear it many times, but we remind one another of it regularly. But it's the most important lesson we will hear. So, the building project, this chronological note, and then what do we learn from the final section? All right, first, the building project. And we're looking at uh, chapters 35 through 40. So, we're looking at the, the very ending section of the the. Uh, book of Exodus, and the first phase of the building project was a giving campaign. So let me read verses 4 and 5 and 20 and 21 of chapter 35. Moses said to the holy Israelite community, this is what the Lord has commanded. From what you have, take an offering for the Lord. Everyone who is willing is to bring the, to the Lord an offering of gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple, scarlet yarn, fine linen, etc., etc. He tells what they're supposed to bring. Then down verses 20 and 21. Then the whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses' presence, and everyone who was willing and whose heart moved him came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work on the tent of meeting, for all its service, and for the sacred garments. So this was a free will offering. It was not a tax. We should also note that it involved an investment. It involved giving of the, the, each family's richest resources. And they gave. They gave, in fact, so abundantly that ultimately the offering had to be stopped. I'm going to read 36, 4 through 6. So all the skilled craftsmen who were doing all the work on the sanctuary left their work and said to Moses, look, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order and they sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from, from bringing more. Would that 
our giving today would be that abundant. The second thing that jumps out at us from the text is that the project required a great deal of skill. Now, I'm going to get to what they actually built in a minute, but this is laying the groundwork for it. So they, this free will offering, and then also the offering of their, their time and their talent. Verse, uh, chapter 35, verse 10. All who were skilled among you are to come and make everything the Lord has commanded. And then verses 25 and 26 of chapter 35. I'm just trying to give you a, a feel for this. Every skilled woman spun with her hands and brought what she had spun. <coughs> Blue, purple, or scarlet yarn, or fine linen, etc., etc. The skill required and the skills that were contributed to the project was so important that Moses actually singled out two people for special commendation. I, I'm going to read this real, real quickly. This is not on your screen, but listen to this. This is chapter 35 at the end of the chapter. Then Moses said to the Israelites, See, the Lord has chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, son of the tribe of Judah. He's filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, ability, and knowledge in all kinds of crafts. And Moses sees that as a filling of God. To make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze. To cut stones, to work in wood, to engage in all kinds of artistic craftsmanship. And he's given both him and Aholiab, son of whatever, of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others. He's filled them with this skill, etc. cetera. Uh, what I want you to notice about this is, oh, at least for me, I find this striking because throughout this whole account of the book of Exodus, there are very few individuals, there are some, but very few individuals that are singled out for recognition. We just don't have that many names from this whole story. I think I think, and yet these two craftsmen get this kind of recognition. I think that just underscores both how important it was that this structure be built with excellence, but also how important it is that uh, the generous offering was, wasn't just stuff. It was time and talent as well. Now, when you read through these, first, these six chapters, 35 through 40, in one setting, you'll walk away with the clear impression that what they were doing here was very meticulously following the Lord's command at every step. This is hard to miss. Listen to this. And Mike, I'm going to ask you to roll through these really quickly. Th chapter 35, verse 10. All who are skilled among you are to come and make everything the Lord has commanded. 36.1. So Bezalel and Ahaliab and every skilled person whom the Lord has given skill and ability to know how to carry out the work that was constructed or to do just as the Lord had commanded. Then 39.1, they also made sacred garments for Aaron as, as the Lord commanded Moses. And then 39.5, it's skillfully woven, waistband was like blah, 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 blah. As the Lord commanded Moses at the end, 13 times that phrase, as the Lord commanded Moses, appears in just these six chapters. And seven more times, they add the, the commentary, as the Lord commanded him. The Lord was clearly the architect and project manager for this entire effort. And they were working meticulously to uh, abide by the Lord's commands and do exactly what he said. All right, how about the building itself? Well, after they collected the materials needed for the project, they set first to work on the tabernacle itself. And in the text, this begins in chapter 36 with verse 8. So I want you to see this artist's rendering of the tabernacle. That gives you a, a rough idea. That's the, that's the elaborate tent in the middle, the tabernacle is. The tabernacle was 
uh, 45 feet by 15 feet, and I have marked that out this morning. So I'm going to ask for four volunteers. One right there. Thank you. There is a blue square. There's one over there just beyond. Uh, if, if I could get a volunteer to just stand right there. There's one back about almost to the back of the chairs. Uh, kind of even if I can get a volunteer to stand there. And then there's one back there on that side. Now, those of you who are at home, uh, do you see that blue square? If I can get one volunteer to stand there. Thank you, Jared. Those of you who are at home, you can't fully see this side, but they're, they're just out, outside of your vision. But this is the size of the tabernacle, the, the tent structure itself. Now, the first two-thirds of it 15 by 30, that would have been the holy place. And we're going to talk in a minute about the furniture that was in the holy place. The back third of it, 15 by 15, that would have been the most holy place. The two would have been separated from one another by a tent, uh, by a curtain. There was an elaborate and beautifully woven curtain system that went over the top of the tabernacle. It had, they, they, they wove cherubim into the curtains and, and uh, elaborately woven linen yarn and those went over the top and they also covered the front of the tabernacle, which was kind of the entrance. It was a, a beautiful curtain. And then there was a curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. So curtains over the top, curtains in front, curtains separating the, the divide. And then over the top of the curtains was a goat hair curtain, which was also finely woven. And over the top of that was a, a leather curtain that went over the entire structure to protect it. Thank you, guys. You may be seated. It seems like the next piece of the construction was the Ark of the Covenant. It's described at the beginning of chapter 37. If you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to be flipping through and just watch this. The Ark eventually became the storage place. So the Ark of the Covenant was the storage place. It was a large chest. It was the storage place for the two stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, for Aaron's rod that had bloomed earlier in the story, and, and for a sampling of manna. And I wanted you to get uh, a, an idea of the size so this is the size of the Ark of the Covenant. It also had an elaborate covering over the top of it that had two cherubim that, that faced one another. It was made of acacia wood, not cardboard, in case you're wondering, and it was overlaid with gold. And parts of the top were pure gold. And then as you can see, along the bottom, it had those poles made of acacia wood overlaid with gold, and it was to be carried only by the poles. It was never to be touched. You know that story. When you try to touch it, you take the top off, it burns the face off of Nazis. So this was the, uh, this was the, Ark, this was the Ark of the Covenant. It was three and three-fourths feet long and two and a quarter feet wide and high. It's a beautiful uh, you know, kind of rectangular chest. The, the next piece to be constructed, at least the next piece to be described in the text, is the table. Might go to the, the, yes. So the table is, it's on your right, the, the table of showbread. Uh, beautiful table made of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Uh, each week, the showbread was placed on the table, and it was literally a, a piece of specially baked bread, baked to represent God's presence. Next came the lampstand. See the picture? The lampstand was a gorgeous, pure gold menorah, seven candlesticks, and it was lit constantly, fueled by olive oil. 
After this, the altar of incense is described at the end of chapter 37. And the altar of incense was about one and a half feet long and wide and three feet wide, tall. You see it standing there. And obviously it just burned incense all day. The incense itself was made from a combination of olive oil and various fragrances. And there were professional perfumers who constantly made the incense for the altar of incense. And those were the pieces of furniture that went inside the tabernacle. So in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And then in the holy place was the altar of incense, the table of showbread, and uh, the golden lampstand. Between the, uh, the, well, first, when we move outside of the tabernacle, you get into the courtyard. We'll describe that in, uh, in a little more detail in a minute. But in the courtyard, there were two pieces of furniture. These were large pieces of furniture. You, if you see the picture, at the top left is the altar of burnt offering. It was seven and a half feet long and wide. It was made of bronze with a bronze grating. This was where they sacrificed the animals. And all of the utensils used in the sacrificing uh, were bronze as well. And then between the altar and the tabernacle, so the altar would have been almost, at, imagine, at that wall over there, between the altar and the tabernacle would have been the basin. And it was literally a place for washing, ceremonially and literally washing, before and after the sacrifices were made. It was also made of bronze. Then beginning in chapter 38, verse 9, the text outlines the construction of the courtyard curtain system. So, uh, might go back to the, yeah, that picture. So, the, the, the entire courtyard was 75 feet wide by 150 feet long. So, imagine almost twice the size of uh, the gymnasium that we're in right now. And it was surrounded on all four sides by uh, a beautifully woven curtain system that was seven and a half, or about seven and a half feet tall, regularly spaced with poles that were built exact to specifications. They were silver with silver toppings and, and brass um, on the bottoms, brass stands. Uh, the whole, the pole, but the poles and hooks were all made of silver. After this description of the courtyard curtain system, chapter 38 ends with an accounting of all the materials that they had used for this project. Then, chapter 39 covers the construction of the priestly garments. So there was an elaborately made robe. There was a, a, an ephod that went over the robe, which was a gorgeously decorated robe covering. And then a breast piece that was fantastic. It was covered in jewels, 12 fine jewels that represented the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel, the children of Israel. Then finally, in chapter 40, we get the first picture of the courtyard and the tabernacle system being set up for the first time. And that's how Exodus ends. They actually build all of this, and then Moses inspects it, and then they set it up for the first time. And then you get that last paragraph that we read. Okay, and we're going to talk about a so what in just a second, because it's a big one. But before we do, indulge me, a little parenthesis here. I'm going to, uh, I want to share just a little chronological detail here that I had never gotten until this time, my studying through Exodus for the, this series. 
Uh, I, it's a fascinating piece of chronology, and I think you'll be particularly interested in it if you, if you like Old Testament history. First, I want to read chapter 40, verse 17, to kind of give you the starting place. Thanks, Mike. So the tabernacle was set up. Look at this, the time signature here. The tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month of the second year. So Moses set up the tabernacle on New Year's Day of the second year. It's highly unlikely that this was coincidental. I suspect Moses waited for days, maybe weeks, so that this momentous event could happen on this memorable day. The new year automatically brings to mind thoughts of a fresh start, right? It happens for us in January. It also, by the way, happens for us right now in September. It feels like a fresh start. So this was perfect for the Israelites' mindset as they undertook this brand new expression of their faith. You have to appreciate Moses' sense of theater here. So let's get the picture. By way of review, they had left Egypt and they had traveled through the desert of Shur and desert of Shen for about three months. At that point, they arrived at Mount Sinai. They set up camp at the base of the mountain of Mount Sinai. And then for eight months, they rested and reprovisioned and got organized. There had been some grumblings and some tension between Moses and the people along the way. But God provided manna and God provided water. And he provided various signs of his presence throughout like the, the cloud on top of the mountain. Now, during the first eight months that they were at Mount Sinai, God had called Moses up on the mountain and had given him the Ten Commandments. This is described for us in chapter 20. Dean went over that with us. He also had given him a longer list of regulations and statutes for how they should relate to one another. This is laid out in chapters 21 through 23. Then there was this great covenanting celebration and ceremony. You're our God, we're your people. This is laid out for us in chapter 24. Then Moses went back up on the mountain to have the commandments literally written down by the hand of God. And he also received further instructions about this, about the great building. This is in chapters 25 through 30. But during this visit, there was a rebellion in the camp, you may remember. Some of the people went as far as setting up what was either a false god or a, a very artificial false image of Yahweh. And God was very displeased, to say the least. And when Moses discovered the treason, he broke the stone tablets and he, he engaged in some serious house cleaning. In fact, on God's instructions, several hundred of the rebels were killed. Then Moses went back up on the mountain again and God wrote the Ten Commandments again and perhaps God reiterated or maybe even added to his instructions about this building project. Stay with me. Three months they wandered, eight months they were at Mount Sinai, during which time giving of the commandments. Twice there was the initiation of the covenant, great affirmation of their faith. It was the great rebellion. There was a time of repentance, and then they, then they engaged in this building project. Now I want you to see something interesting, that the very last paragraph of the book of Exodus, which the girls read for us, gives us a big picture summary statement that, that sets us up really for for the adventures that are going to come in, in, the, in the rest of their travelings until they get to the promised land. So I'm going to read that very last paragraph of the last section that the girls read. Again, this is verses 36 through 38. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted, etc. Put a pin in that. 
Now, I want you, if you would, in your minds, to skip over to Numbers chapter 9. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Skip over to Numbers chapter 9. Mike, bring that up on the screen. On the day the tabernacle, the tent of the covenant law, was set up, the cloud covered it. From evening till morning, the cloud above the tabernacle looked like fire. This is how it continued to be. The cloud covered it at night, and it looked like fire. Whenever the cloud lifted, recognize that? Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites set out. Wherever the cloud settled, the Israelites encamped. In other words, this Numbers passage is almost exactly the same wording as the end of Exodus. And it refers to exactly the same event. We're at the same point in history in both accounts. Then, just a chapter later, in Numbers chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, I know some of you are lost already, but stay with me. Numbers 10, 11 and 12. On the 20th day of the second month of the second year, the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle of the covenant of law. And then the Israelites set out from the desert of Sinai and traveled from place to place, etc. The, the time signature here is 48 days. Day one, month one, year two. Day 20, month two, year two. 48 days later, that's the first time they set out from Mount Sinai, packing up the tabernacle, taking it with them. So again, three months they traveled around, eight months they were at the foot of Mount Sinai, a bunch of stuff happened. Then for 48 days more, they waited on God to tell them to move. And during those 48 days, God gave them all of the instructions of the book of Leviticus and the first nine chapters of the book of Numbers, the census taking. Honestly, I never realized that until this time studying Exodus. The entire book of Leviticus, first section of the book of Numbers, all happened at Mount Sinai during the month after they set up the tabernacle waiting for God to tell them to move. And then the rest of the book of Numbers tells the rest of their story and their journey on their way to the promised land. As we said last week, in all, their stay at Mount Sinai was about 10 months. It was an incredibly important time for them, but it was always meant to be temporary because they had a mission. Okay, so what? The book of Exodus ends with six chapters describing in incredible detail the building of the tabernacle and the basin and the altar of incense and this court system and the, and the courtyard. What, what do we learn from that? And, and we're sitting in suburban northern Virginia. So what? Well, more than you think. If we examine this overall project, if we look for the principle behind it, we learn the same lesson that the entire Exodus campaign has taught us. If you miss everything else from the entire book of Exodus, don't miss this. God was training his people to make their relationship with him their central and highest priority. Think about it. They were traveling, of course. So think of the demands on your family of, of living as a Bedouin like this and uh, away from your home, away from everything you've known. Think of the tensions. Think of the health concerns the concerns about provision, protection, among many other things. Plus, they were on their way to the promised land. 
They believed that God had promised them this land generationally. In fact, he'd reiterated those promises throughout the Exodus story. Still, they knew there would be sacrifices when they got there. They knew that they would have to go to war against the people who, peoples who occupied the land. Think of getting ready for that, organizing, training, the mental preparation for that. And yet, in the face of all of those concerns, they were instructed to expend a tremendous amount of resources and energy and time building a house for God in a place of worship. Their relationship to God was to be their central and highest priority above all of those other immediate and long-term concerns. Look, they still had miles to go and an army of people to feed and keep organized. Plus, they had a leader, Moses. He'd accomplished the unimaginable. He delivered them from slavery in Egypt in incredible ways. Okay, God did that, but you know what I mean. And in the ancient world, that meant something. Moses could have, he should have exacted tribute from them. They could have, culturally they should have, built a tabernacle for Moses. But first, they built an elaborate and finely crafted home for God. They had an army to feed and yet they collected valuables in order to build a center for the worship of God. They do this as a first priority. And it required an extensive investment of time, talent, and treasure. In fact, considering all the factors surrounding their lives, this could have been considered a wasteful use of valuable resources. There was an ex extensive amount of training involved in this project. Craftsmen and women were, were training others to sew, to build, to refine. There was an extensive amount of planning involved. There was an extensive amount of infrastructure needed just for the collection, much less the building. All of that effort drove home the point that their relationship with God was to be their first and their highest priority. And then the tabernacle, everywhere they went, occupied the central place in the camp. No matter where you were in the camp of the children of Israel, you could see the tabernacle at the center of their lives, individually and corporately. The very center, their lives were organized around a place of worship. As part of the collection, they were to bring the first and the best of their resources. As part of the construction, they were to employ the best and highest of their skills a constant reminder that their relationship with God was to be their highest and central priority. And this was God's message throughout the whole Exodus event. Think of all that God had done throughout this story. Through the plagues in Egypt, he had embarrassed the Egyptian powers and the fake Egyptian gods. Through the desert journeys up to this point, he had reminded them constantly that he will provide, but they must depend on him daily. In fact, the manna that he provided, it spoiled after one day. Through the statutes and regulations, he taught them that their way of life must be governed by reference to him and his character. Their relationships with one another must be governed by him and his character. Even their relationships with their animals had to be governed by him and his character. In the Ten Commandments, he offered them the best ways to live and it begin, the best way to prosper. And it begins with putting him first. No other God before me. No other cause before me. And don't, and don't imagine what I am. 
Don't make it up. No images. Let me show you what I am and trust in that. Everything you do is done in reference to me. And now, now I want you to expend the best of your resources, the best of your energy, the best of your time, and I want you to make a place of worship, a home for me, at the center of your energy, at the center of your resources, at the center of your very lives. I will be there at the center, or I will be nowhere at all. If you miss everything else from the book of Exodus, don't miss this. God is training his people to make our relationship with him our central and highest priority. And we are about to enter into uh, a new season as as families, as, as individuals, as a church, aren't we? That's how we think about fall, typically. Well, as you think about your schedule this fall, Make your relationship with God your central and your highest priority. You know that illustration? You've probably seen it at some corporate event. I was going to actually do it physically this morning, but I'll save it for another time. You know, you get a big glass jar, and you, you, have, some, you have one big rock. And you got, you've got maybe five mid-sized rocks, and you've got a whole bunch of pebbles. And you're instructed, put them all in the big jar. And, of course, the person who's arranged all this, they know that they'll all fit. But you, you pour in the pebbles, and then you dump some of the mid-sized rocks in, and there is no space for the big rock. You can't get it in. It won't fit. You go through two or three iterations before you realize that in order for it all to go in, you have to start with the big rock. If you put the big rock in, and then the mid-sized rocks around, Then you pour in the pebbles, it'll fill in all the spaces and everything fits. As you think about your schedule this fall, make your relationship with God your central and highest priority. Week by week, the vacations that you plan this fall, the the events that your kids are doing. As you think about your resources, start, start your planning and your expenditure with your relationship with God. Don't start with planning for your taxes. Don't start with planning for your vacations. Don't start with planning for your kids' travel teams. Start with the big rock, and everything else can fit. If you start with the pebbles, the big rock will not go in. And you'll come to the end of this fall, and you'll you'll feel disconnected. Oh, I need to get back some. I don't know what happened. Pastor John Maxwell tells the story of his 14-year-old son learning to give to God's causes. He said, my 14-year-old son, I had a job this year. He got his first official paycheck. Boy, was he thrilled. He came home and showed me his paycheck. Then he marched into the room where his mom was and said, you know, I've thought it over, and I'm not sure I can afford to tithe. He has more money in his hands than he's ever had before, and what happens? All of a sudden, we say, oh, I really need this money for something else. Out of the mouths of a 14-year-old boy, true to his human nature, comes this whole question, where do I put God? Is he first? Is he second? Is he 23rd? Where is God? 
As you think about your children, those of you who have children at home still this fall, make God the central and first priority in your life and then as much as you can, introduce it as a first priority to them in their life as well. Don't start with planning and scheduling with school. Don't start, that's critically important. Don't start with extracurricular activities. Make your relationship with God the first and best of your thinking and your time. In a long letter to a friend, C.S. Lewis closed his letter with this. When I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall be moving toward the state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed but increased. As you think about your work, God is training us to put our relationship with him first, even there. Uh, Jesus would remind us of this in his teaching ministry. Um, Jesus, of course, was the ultimate tabernacle. God made manifest. All of this building material went into that, flesh and bones. Jesus, in his teaching material, at one point he said to a crowd of his followers and to us, look, why are you worried about what you're going to wear or your clothes, your car, your mortgage, how the kids' uh, college is going to get paid for? Don't worry about that. You know, look, look at the flowers. They don't worry. I take care of them. Look at the birds. They don't worry. I take care of them. And then he added this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else is added. Everything else. The secondary things get increased, not decreased. I'm going to ask Jordan and Cassie to come back. If you miss everything else from the book of Exodus, don't miss this. God is training his people to make our relationship with him our central and highest priority. So I'm going to ask you, if you would, uh, to stand with me for a closing prayer and a blessing, and then we'll sing together. Let's pray. As we pray, I'm going to ask each of us, including those of you who are watching from home, I'm going to ask each of us to do a little bit of spiritual work. What is the next right thing for you to do? to make God first in your life, to make your relationship with Jesus Christ the most important thing in your life. And for some of you, you're a little further down the track than many of us, so the right question for you is, what's the next right thing for you to do to secure that position this fall, to strengthen it? What would he have of you? What, what habit do you need to give up to do violence against, to confess to get help? What tension or, or anger or worry or heartache you need to let go? What part of your schedule needs to be adjusted? You, you may already have a fall schedule that does not permit you to be a Christian. 
You cannot meticulously follow the Lord's instructions. You don't have time to listen to Him. What is the first step that you need to take to make Him first? Or to tighten, to secure that position? We are calling on you, God, the God of Jacob, the God of the great God of Mary, the God of Moses who split oceans. Do the same thing for us. Move in our hearts, move in our lives as we make you first. want to see you and we want more of you. Hey, Gateway, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance on you as he has done for generations now and forever.